Legendary French chef Auguste Escoffier knew that to be a good cook, you had to master the basics. His great-grandson Michelle told me how actress Sarah Bernhardt credited the chef's scrambled eggs for her longevity. She apparently replied laughing, oh, maybe the fact that every morning at breakfast I have a glass of champagne with Mr. Escoffier's scrambled eggs. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts helps aspiring chefs perfect their scrambled eggs and so much more. Head to escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Lickable wallpaper. Do you remember the scene in the Gene Wilder classic, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where Wonka starts the tour of the factory in the room with lickable wallpaper, and he encourages the kids to take a taste. Wait a minute. I must show you this. Lickable wallpaper for nursery walls. He says, lick an orange, it tastes like an orange. Lick a pineapple, it tastes like pineapple. Go ahead, try it. Mmm, oh. I got a plum. Grandpa, this banana's fantastic. It tastes so real. Try, Try some, some more. more. The, the strawberries taste, taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? As a little girl, I wanted that wallpaper in my bedroom. But more than that, I wanted to know how they made the wallpaper. In fact, I still want to know about lickable wallpaper and just about every food I eat. It's why I have this job. So today, we're giving you a golden ticket, and inviting you inside the factory. You get to see the world of flavor. And as it turns out, it takes a lot of passion, science, and a bit of pure imagination. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. This journey really started with a jelly bean. This is Sarah Joyner. She's a producer on our show. A jelly bean that tastes like socks. Beg your pardon? Yeah, so you've probably heard of this Jelly Belly product, Bean Boozled. Sure, I've seen it. I haven't played it. My kids play with it. Uh, It's got some good jelly beans, some bad ones. Same colors, right? Yeah. You don't know what you're getting. Exactly. It's like Russian roulette for your taste buds. (laughs) And it comes in a bag full of jelly beans with a variety of colors all mixed together, like you said. But each color could be one of two very different flavors, like strawberry banana smoothie or dead fish, lime or lawn clippings, tutti frutti or stinky socks. (laughs) Okay, that is so dark. It's really twisted. I kind of love it. Totally. And it's so fun. People really, really get a kick out of it. Bridget, I wish I was the kind of person who could just play this bean boozled game and enjoy it, but I'm not that person. I have to know how they do it. Seriously, how do you create a jelly bean that tastes like dirty socks? I just couldn't let it go. It's all I thought about. It's all I talked about. It literally kept me up at night. It just got completely stuck 
in my brain. And I can get that. I mean, we're both food people, right? We think about food all the time. I want to know how things are made, sure, but this is beyond just regular food. Right. And that that is exactly where my obsession with Bean Boozled really sits with me, sort of trying to wrap my mind around how they achieve it, because they really do taste how they're built. They say they're giving you a sock-flavored bean, and you taste it, and it does. It tastes like socks. How do they take a thing that we do not eat normally, for example, smelly socks, create some sort of recipe for it, and then give us a jelly bean that tastes exactly like smelly socks? First of all, what's in them? And secondly, how would you even figure out what to put in them? I would have no idea. I mean, where do you start from there? I guess I would ask my dog, George, because he's an expert on eating smelly socks. Why didn't I think of interviewing George? (laughs) But uh, fortunately for me, I work here at Proof, and I have a job where I can literally take company funds and go find out. What follows is part one of a two-part series on Sarah's smelly sock jelly bean journey. So I started where any person would, the ingredient list. Okay, so... I'm looking at the back of this Bean Boozled 4th Edition bag, looking at the ingredients, and there's a bunch of the, like, typical stuff I would expect. We've got sugar, corn syrup, modified food starch, um, and then a whole section that says contains 2% or less of the following. Peach puree concentrate, banana puree, lime juice concentrate. So a bunch of concentrates that correspond to, like, the good flavors in this package. But... No ingredients that hint at being components of the bad flavors. And so we get down to like pretty close to the bottom of the list and it says natural and artificial flavors. So that's about as close as we're getting on the bag. Clearly the bag was no help. So the next logical step, I check the Jelly Belly website. I've navigated to the product in question, the Bean Boozled 4th Edition. Um, There's a section here that says, and on the nutrition and ingredients section on the website, it says, sorry, but the nutrition panel for this product is currently unavailable. To get nutrition information for this product, you can contact Consumer Affairs. (laughs) Okay, so I guess I'll call them. Three, two... anyone will help me. Okay, Jelly Belly, I see you're stonewalling. Consumer Affairs, it is. Thanks for continuing to hold. We are still working hard to answer your call as quickly as possible, so please stay with us. Thank you for calling, Jelly Belly. This is Chris. How can I help you? Hi, Chris. Uh, I am calling um, about the Bean Boozled beans. I was wondering um, if you could help me understand what's in them as far as ingredients yeah because so the ingredients on the package this is probably a funny question i'm sorry it doesn't really seem to uh explain like how you guys achieve get the, the nasty flavor exactly right yeah well none just just so that you'll know the, the really nasty ones we it's not like <clears throat> excuse me there's something really nasty in the ingredient it's just you know how they work it out in the in the uh, kitchen, when they put this stuff together, mm-hmm. um, the ingredients are is just uh, sugar, corn syrup, 
uh, modified food starch, and then 2% or less of peach puree concentrate, banana, lime juice pear, coconut dark chocolate, chocolate liqueur, cocoa butter, cocoa powder, natural and artificial flavors. That's more more than likely where they get that, you know, when, when they're, where they're able to get those flavors is the artificial flavoring. Okay, so it's all in these natural and artificial flavors that combine to make the bad stuff. Right, right. It's not okay. like we got, like, dead fish to, to make the dead foot fish flavor or anything like that. Trust me, we get those questions a lot. <laughs> How many times have you gotten a call about that? Oh, um, me personally, at least five or six yeah. since I've been here, which hasn't been very long. But, yeah, people definitely, when they get a hold of one of those nasty flavors, they're like, what in the heck, you know, and how do they make them? And I want to make sure that there's nothing really gross in the ingredients, you know. Have you, have you played this game with anyone before? Mm, no, ma'am. That one I haven't had the courage to do yet. You're not willing. No. Nope, I'm, I'm good on that one. Chris was lovely. She tried to be helpful, but I have to say this conversation created more questions than answers for me. They just, quote, figure it out in the kitchen. I think it's safe to say that the ingredients creating the bad flavors are probably under that black hole, all-encompassing, vague umbrella term, natural and artificial flavors. Less than 2%. These words aren't new to me. They're on ingredient lists for almost everything we eat. But what are they again? Because I certainly have no idea. Lucky for me, I work with a bunch of talented cooks who know food and flavor, at least in a cooking application. But more importantly, they know how to describe what they're tasting. So I enlisted their help, hoping they'd be able to use their superior taste buds to shed some light. Okay. All right. So I don't know exactly what we're doing, but we've got here a bag of uh, bean boozled jelly beans. And I think it's a combination of... Jelly beans with unexpected flavors. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, <laughs> on the back we have a five by four grid of different jelly beans. Okay. okay. Some are good. Okay. And some of them are terrible. Uh, canned dog food, moldy cheese, stinky socks. Let's just say I just open the bag and I'm gonna zip it back up. Okay. Okay, Sarah? And we don't even have water to drink. Let's do this. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Here we go. Oh, oh, Lord. Well, it's not peach. It's not peach. I can tell you that much. I'm getting like a garbagey <laughs> flavor. Pear or what? Boogies? It's a de- Oh, my God. I don't think I got pear. Yep. I no doubt. Got the boogies. Got a boogie. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh. Yikes. Why am I still I'm chewing crying. this? This is offensive. It's, I'm offended. Is it vomit? It's vomit, right? Let's see. Yeah, it's barf. That's a barf flavored jelly bean we both just ate. That is can we swear? That was <laughs> disgusting. Yeah, like that. Ugh, I've had to do goosebumps. I didn't think they were gonna nail booger. They nailed. They, nailed, they booger. nailed booger. Oh, yeah. That tastes like spoiled milk. That tastes. They probably use spoiled milk. 
It's probably the most cost effective way of doing it. Oh my god. That is unbelievable. That was absolutely It's disgusting. like there was a little rotten fish living inside of the chili belly. I have to, it's kudos to these people. How, how they do this is like. Seriously? Yeah, I mean, if you were to guess, like. I mean, what, I, I think, I think. This one was like fish sauce. I think that was, that tasted exactly like rotten fish. I don't know. I don't even know. Do they just have like a closet of Jelly Belly where everything is terrible? <laughs> I'm genuinely curious. I, I, would, I would love to know. Yeah, does it start as a flavor reject? It was supposed to be good, and then it starts a little bit bad, and then they just roll with it uh, like, and make it all the way bad. Like, no, this one tastes like barf, and somebody's there with a clipboard, like, okay. <laughs> Actually, put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to Sarah's findings, I just want to point out that possibly more disturbing than the idea of stinky sock jelly beans is that my coworkers could identify the flavor of authentic boogers confidently. There's a precision at work here that I'm both impressed and intrigued by. It's remarkable in a way. I mean, these flavors are convincing. They're unmistakable. They're disgusting, but they're disgusting in an accurate way. And obviously, my colleagues are skilled tasters. They would have to be to work as test cooks at America's Test Kitchen. But their best guess at how Jelly Belly achieved these flavors was that they actually put spoiled milk and rotten fish inside a jelly bean, which my friend Chris in customer service promised me was not the case. But I'm not one to accept a dead end. So the search continues. I guess. Don't smell it. Yeah. All right. Smoothie. Me too. Yes. This game is awesome. How many more do you want us to do? How did you get the good one at the end? I'm here with my colleague Jack Bishop. He is a tasting expert, and he also plays one on our TV show. And he developed all the tasting protocols that we deploy at America's Test Kitchen. Um, he has the ability to talk about the nuances of flavor to sort of parse out the individual components um, and talk about them individually. And he is here to help us understand a little bit about what's going on when we eat. It's much more complicated than most people imagine. Mm -hmm. um, I think the easiest way to think about this is taste and flavor are not the same thing. Right. So taste, the first thing that happens is our taste buds. These are little receptors, uh, mostly on our tongue, but also on the lining of our mouth go to work. They're basically five receptors, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. And so that's the first thing uh, that hits is our taste buds are literally the compounds, the molecules are locking into these different receptors and shooting signals up to our brain that says that's salty. Mm -hmm. Most of what we call taste is actually flavor and does not occur with the taste buds. It occurs with little sensors in our nose. When you chew most foods, you're releasing a ton of aromas that are going up through this passage in the back of your nose. It's actually called the nasopharynx. The nasopharynx. All of these sensors, there are at least 10,000 of them that can detect different aromas. But we perceive it as if it's coming from our tongue almost. Yes. The taste buds and what's happening in your nose all goes to your brain at one time and says, that's raspberries, or that's smelly socks. So I'm going to then bring this to life for you. Okay. So next time you're throwing a party and you have 
jelly beans. Yeah, well, that's the kind of party I've been inviting my friends to recently. (laughs) (laughs) Ask your friends to put a jelly bean in their mouth with their nose pinched closed with their fingers. Put it in their mouth. They will have no idea what they are eating. It will be a little um, sour from the citric acid. It will be a lot sweet from the sugar, but it will have no flavor. Then tell them to release the fingers from their nose, and suddenly they will be able to smell, and they'll be like, oh, that's cherry or buttered popcorn if it's not a very good experience or if it's a terrible experience, dirty socks. So these evasive, natural, and artificial flavors in these bad bean-boozled beans are recreating smells we're familiar with, which is how we perceive the flavor is accurate. So what if you've never eaten a sock? You know what a sock smells like. And that explains our experience of the bean, but that still doesn't explain how do they pack all that flavor or smell into a safe-to-eat bean, and how do they come up with the recipe? I'm going to put you on the speaker. Hold on. Can you hear us now? I can hear you, yeah. So I decided to make contact with Jelly Belly's product team. Okay, I'm going to put in my headphones. Okay, my name is Arena Miles, and I'm responsible for product development and regulatory at Jelly Belly Candy Company. We were originally approached to manufacture Birdie Bots Every Flavor Beans. Birdie Bots is a collection of bad-flavored beans that Jelly Belly made before creating Bean Boozled. You might recognize the name. They're inspired by Harry Potter. Ah, Birdie Bots Every Flavor Beans. I was most unfortunate in my youth to come across a vomit-flavored one. And since then, I'm afraid I've lost my liking for them. But I think I could be safe with a nice toffee. Mmm. A lot. Earwax. And as you know, in that uh, mix, there's funny flavors like earwax or vomit. Was there any sort of, like, nervousness at the time that consumers would be grossed out by this gross product? Oh, of course. We were very, very nervous. But as we continued to work on the project, everyone just kept getting more excited about the fun aspect of it. And when we started making some of the prototypes, people couldn't stop eating them. Just the sheer fact of the experience alone was a very fun thing to do. At some point after Birdie Bots had had some success, Jelly Belly execs began to notice that their customers were sort of making it into a game. They would take the beans and close their eyes and and eat them and try to guess which bad flavors they were eating. So, you know, they thought, hey, maybe there's something there. And so that was when we realized that if we took two beans and made them look the same and one was bad and one was good, people didn't have to close their eyes. They could just do it by themselves. And that's when Bean Boozled was born. So they start developing more and more flavors. Rotten egg, canned dog food. Moldy cheese, booger, stinky socks. And turns out, it's a pretty hazardous gig. Well, we had one of our um, R&D techs when she was working on uh, one of the flavors. I think it was the sweaty socks. She was working quite a bit with it. And she came home one day and her husband turned to her and said, what? 
smells. And she essentially had to throw away the boots that she had been wearing for the last couple of weeks because the smell just would not go away. So it is a challenge. And we were thinking about hazard pay, but we haven't convinced them just yet. (laughs) What what did you say? Hazard pay? That's what we were. We've been discussing that as an option, you know, (laughs) hazard pay. I I would I never thought that I would hear hazard pay in the context of a conversation about jelly beans. But the development of these flavors doesn't always look the same, like in the case of the vomit bean. Well, years ago we were tasked with making a pizza flavored bean, and we did a pretty good job, but it just wasn't good enough to be sold on the market. It was it tasted like a pizza, but Mm, There was a couple of things missing. So then a couple of years later, they said, you know, let's make a vomit bean. And a couple of people turned around and looked at each other and said, I think that they mean our pizza bean. So we pulled it out of the archives and... Archives? Archives? They do have a closet of bad flavors. We tasted it again and it was pretty close to vomit. And then we realized this is why we didn't sell it as a pizza bean. Um, Well, there was a couple of things we tweaked about it, but it was pretty much a pizza bean. I couldn't help but feel like there was some sort of poetry in this story. The fact that a failed pizza bean could someday become a successful vomit bean. I've always loved an underdog. But enough already. What's in them? Oh, for our Jelly Belly jelly beans, we actually try to put uh, real ingredients in there. Meaning, if it's a cherry-flavored jelly bean, our very cherry, we try to put some sort of cherry in there, whether it's cherry puree, cherry juice concentrate. So as many times as possible, we'll try to put the actual item into the bean. When it comes to these um, bean-boozled beans, there is no dog food, nor fish, nor uh, moldy cheese in any of those beans. It's actually flavors that we purchase. There's that word again, flavors. I suspect she's referring to the ever-elusive natural and artificial flavors, that code we can't seem to crack. And then we blend them here to, um, you know, get the complexity because we can buy a flavor that's pretty, um, you know, like a one-note flavor, but we need to have multi-notes. So we'll get, a, you know, maybe vanilla as one flavor. In one instance, we have what's called a, a, a Worcestershire-like flavor, and we'll add that in there. And so we start layering the flavors into the bean so that we get just exactly what we want I'm not calling Arena a liar, but I didn't personally detect any vanilla notes in that vomit bean. Not to mention, she just described layers of flavor and multi-notes for a vomit-flavored bean. Exactly. But anyway, she couldn't tell me very much, which was extremely disappointing. It turns out recipes like this are considered proprietary information. So Arena was pretty tight-lipped about not only specific ingredients, but also the tools that they use to accomplish this. Flavor recipes can't be patented, so they can't be protected from competition. And because of this, manufacturers and food companies keep recipes and process really close to the chest. But that wasn't the only thing she told me. After the break... 
Sarah gets her first major clue to the Dirty Sock Jelly Bean Mystery. It's time for this week's Bob's Red Mill Quiz. And this week's contestant, well, I've got my good friend, Julia Colin Davison. Hello. Hey, Julia. We're talking pancakes today. You up for it? Yeah, bring it. All right. Well, specifically, it's all about Bob's Red Mill's protein pancake and waffle mix. Here we go. Bob's Red Mill's protein pancake and waffle mix gets a protein boost from which of the following ingredients? Is it A, stone ground whole wheat pastry flour, B, whey, C, pea proteins, or D, sweet cream buttermilk? Hmm. Well, all of those have protein, and they're all appropriate in pancakes, so I'm not sure. You stumped me, Bridget. It's because I tricked you. (laughs) The answer is E, all of the above. (laughs) Sneaky. Bob's delicious, wholesome protein pancake and waffle mix is easy to prepare, and the only ingredient you need from your kitchen is water. Learn more at bobsredmill.com and use the offer code ATK at checkout to get 25% off your next purchase. You know when you're cooking something like chicken or fish and you need to wash your hands, but you don't want to touch the faucet because then you got to clean the faucet? Kohler has thought of this. Their faucets have something called response touchless technology. You simply wave your hand or a utensil through the sensor window to turn it on and off like magic. It's really convenient and hygienic because it reduces the chances of spreading germs around the kitchen. You and your family are going to be nice and safe. The touchless sensor is on the underside of the spout and turns on and off in 20 milliseconds. Perfect if you don't have a second to spare. And if you forget to turn it off, the faucet's going to shut itself off after four minutes. No batteries are necessary. It connects to your AC power. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners, here's a tip from me to you to make holiday cooking a little bit easier. Try out Joule, the sous vide machine that can help you cook everything from big roasts to big breakfasts. The Joule is smart. It even holds food at the right temp until you're ready for it. And it's hands-free, so while Joule is working, you get to hang out with your guests. Joule, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Joule and use code ATK2018 to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Before the break, Sarah Joyner was taking us on a journey to find out how Jelly Billy put some unfortunate flavors, to say the least, into their jelly beans. Now here's Sarah to tell us about a big clue to what makes a dirty sock jelly bean taste, well, like a dirty sock. So I was speaking with Arena Miles, who's responsible for product development at Jelly Belly, and I had been talking to her for a while, and I didn't think that she was going to spill any secrets about the recipe for Dirty Sock Jelly Beans. But then she said something I didn't expect. Well, a lot of times we try to find the object that we're trying to um, emulate. So in the case of stinky socks or sweaty feet, we'll 
ask people to bring in, you know, their tennis shoes or we'll get their socks slightly moist and we'll put them in a Ziploc bag and let them ferment for a little while. And then we'll start understanding what it is that we're looking for. And then we start, um, you know, working with flavors to get all those tones and um, high notes in there as well. So our colleagues were on to something. While stinky socks aren't necessarily inside the beans, they do start the flavor-making process with an actual stinky sock. I know this is supposed to make me feel better, but it really doesn't. I know. The thought of Jelly Belly chemists like, digging through their laundry at home to find a sock to take with them to work. Uh, honey, where are those socks you wore to the soccer game last week? <laughs> it's hilarious. But this process of creating a smell and fermenting it and recreating it, it apparently takes a really, really long time. Oh, it can take us anywhere from three to nine months to finish a bean. Nine months. I've grown a couple human beings in less time than that. Okay, Bridget, I think at this point we could use a quick recap. So here's what we know. You don't need to have eaten a smelly sock to know what one tastes like. That's the role of smell and flavor. And you don't need to put a smelly sock into a jelly bean to make it taste like one. You just need to reference a smelly sock as a sort of starting place. But the question that everyone at Jelly Belly was cagey about remains. How do they do it? KG, indeed, you look at the label, it says artificial and natural flavors. I think that's code for we're not going to tell you what's in it. Right. So I decided it was time to look elsewhere for answers. And so I consulted the most uh, trustworthy source I could think of, the internet. (laughs) (laughs) I got to see your search history. Honestly, you're up to date on it. Uh, It's been all jelly belly all the time. (laughs) So anyways, there there wasn't much information available. I kept reading the same anecdotes Arena had told me about herself. The vomit flavor originated as an attempt at a pizza-flavored bean and to develop stinky socks. They fermented socks in a plastic bag, yada, yada. So at this point, I'm starting to feel discouraged. But then I caught another break. Okay, what was it? A gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. A gazoontite. What did you just say? A gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. A very beautiful, impressive, expensive piece of equipment. Or the combination of two instruments, really. And the new loves of my life. (laughs) There are dozens of articles out there that credit Jelly Belly's bad flavor development to these instruments. Gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer. We'll call it by its nickname GCMS or GC mass spec. So this is a room uh, with many mass spectrometers with gas chromatographs for separation. My name is Roger Summons and I am Schlumberger Professor of Geobiology at MIT. Roger Summons runs a lab at MIT full of GC mass specs. Uh, I am particularly interested in the history of life on Earth. Okay, I feel like we took a little bit of a left turn there. (laughs) We did, but uh, stick with me here. Uh, The geological record, you know, has sedimentary sequences that have been studied by geologists for hundreds of years. 
And just as there are physical fossils preserved in rocks, uh, shells, um, bones, those sorts of things, there's also molecules, and molecules have a lot to say about who made them. What Dr. Summons is saying is by analyzing sedimentary rocks or petroleum or oil on a molecular level, we can almost see back in time. We can see sort of a snapshot of what the world looked like when that object formed, how much oxygen was in the air, or what kinds of animals were around. To put it really simply, the GC mass spec tells you what's in everything. It gives you the molecular recipe for a rock or oil or a smelly sock. So as I mentioned before, the GCMS is the combination of two instruments. So the GC separates a mixture into its components, and then the MS tells you the identity of those components. So this is the bank of solvents, and then we go down and you can see this tiny little tube, which is a column with silica. Essentially what happens is a chemist will prepare a sample in a little test tube and put it in a carousel. And this robot arm connected to the GC sort of cranes over and draws up some sample and injects it into the GC. The sample is carried through the machine and eventually it spits out a chart, which looks like a graph with a series of peaks, almost like you'd see on a heart monitor. And this chart tells a chemist the molecular makeup of the sample not just what is there, but how much of it. And we build up pictures or maps of the contents of the particular sample. It's really hard to wrap your mind around the hugeness of this technology, but I really want to impress upon you here how big of a deal this is. During his career, Dr. Summons and his colleagues and students have made discoveries using the GCMS that have shaped the way we understand the history of, frankly, everything. We're using this technique to look at the gut contents of uh, Cretaceous dinosaurs. You can analyze DNA, you can analyze proteins, rocks, oil, the volatility of molecules. Molecules called alkanones produced by algae. It's almost limitless the amount of information that can be carried 60 million years, perhaps even longer. NASA has a fabulous record of using mass spectrometers to learn about history of planets. Are you telling me that they, they're they analyzing dirt from Mars and, and sending the information back here? That is what I'm telling you. These mass spectrometers have been uh, uh, used to conduct a search for life on Mars. This technology, this combination of machines, the GCMS, is used to study the formation of the continents. They've used it to discover evidence of the oldest known sea sponge, clocked in at 580 million years old. It's used to analyze gut contents of a dinosaur that was recovered in Canada recently to search for life on Mars and to create a sock-flavored jelly bean. How about that? 
I want to zoom out a bit and explain how this technology came into contact with the food industry. Chromatography as a technique has been around since the late 1800s. It was originally used to separate components of oil and petroleum and even plants. But early chromatography methods were not successful in analyzing volatile compounds. These are gaseous molecules that sort of dissipate too quickly to be measured. So gas chromatography was developed, which made it possible to look at volatile compounds like aroma compounds or, as we know it, the building blocks of flavor. The first gas chromatographs really start showing up again in the 1950s, and the food industry picks it up quickly. This is Christy Spackman. Christy is a historian of food science, and she's paid specific attention to the gas chromatograph and its role in the food industry. And she tells me as World War II starts winding down, we find ourselves with a surplus of resources left over from the war effort. And at the same time, industry is booming. And agriculture is a part of that boom. And so all of those things are coming together into this perfect storm to create the basis for a growth of a food industry. And as the U.S. starts changing the way we produce and distribute food, we start experiencing some growing pains. So you have the problem of lost tastes and smell. We are heat-treating food in order to extend its shelf life, but that's causing loss of flavor. There's oxidation due to light or air exposure. There's shifting flavors, development of off flavors or odors, and there's flavor transfer from packaging that the food is in. At the same time, the gas chromatograph appears as this fancy brand new instrument being used in other chemistry disciplines, and the food industry quickly latches onto it. This was just this watershed moment. They're so excited if you go back and read their reports and communications with each other in their professional journals. You just hear this excitement, like, look, we can finally know what these things are. So for the first time, food researchers actually have some incredible way to see inside the food in a way that they were never able to do before. They have this technology that can help them identify the problem and then fix it. They believe they can remove the molecular cause of an off flavor or mask it or manufacture and re-inject a flavor that's missing. So the gas chromatograph really has a role to play in industrialized food. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the reason we've arrived at this point where we can stroll into a grocery store and browse thousands of food products that have been mass-produced and are shelf-stable and safe to eat is largely because of the introduction of GC into food research in the 1950s. But... There's a but. There's a really, really big one. So about 10 years after the introduction of the GC into the food industry, it's pervasive. Everyone has a gas chromatograph, and they're really hanging their hopes on it. It's sort of their key to solving issues that are intertwined with the practicalities of mass production. But for some reason, it's not really working the way they'd planned. We get the 1960s, and my favorite part is there's this group at Colgate Palmolive who are working on this off flavor that's present in one of their pine oil-containing products. Colgate Palmolive chemists start running samples through their GC mass spec, comparing it to a control sample, but they're not getting anything. They're getting no indication of a difference between the bad sample and the good sample. 
And you know what they decide to do? They've got a perfumer there on campus, and they get together, these two chemists and this perfumer, and they're like, what if we go on ahead and have our perfumer sniff things? He's really good with identifying chemicals just based on their odor, so maybe he can help us. And they, they did a variety of things. They like put a box over his head. They had him stand inside a telephone booth, and in both of these cases, sent the affluent off of the column in there for him to sniff. So this perfumer is like standing in a makeshift box that the researchers called the birdcage. And there are truly remarkable images available of this. And he's smelling through this port that's coming off of the GC and attached to this box that he's in. And then he starts detecting things with his nose that the machine hadn't been sensitive enough to detect. Because the problem with the machine is that it's a machine. And so you get this amazing little combination of different sorts of researchers coming together where where they're saying, hey, we have expertise in one body, the chemist's body, who knows how to do certain things. And then we have forms of expertise in another body, the perfumer's body, that's really good at identifying things. What if we bring those together with the instrument? Can we create something even more powerful? Relying exclusively on the machine never gave you the full picture, never gave you the full capability of identifying what it was that was wrong. So you might see this great big huge peak that indicates, oh, there's a lot of this molecule present, but that peak doesn't mean anything to the human nose. This almost made my brain explode. What Christy is saying here is that while the GC can tell us which molecules are present in something, it can't tell us how it will be perceived by us, humans. It just can't tell us what something tastes like. Only humans can do that. This hyper-precise instrument is just one piece to a much larger puzzle. And this has me thinking back to my conversation with Arena at Jelly Belly when I asked her how long it took her team to develop these flavors, and she said, you know, several months. Right, so why would it take Jelly Belly that long if this machine could just tell them the recipe for a smelly sock? Exactly. Because that machine is not going to cut it unless it's paired with a human body. In that scene of the Colgate Palmolive perfumer standing in a phone booth in their makeshift birdcage, this is the first documented instance of pairing an expert smeller with the GC. It's called gas chromatography olfactometry, and it's considered best practice now in the industry. This combination is what can provide us with the truest, clearest picture of what's going on in our food the combination of man and machine. And maybe I'm sentimental, but this struck me as really beautiful. That there's an instrument that in some ways is even more sophisticated than this GC mess that analyzes space rocks and dinosaur stomachs. And it's us, it's our sense of smell. And it's so difficult to understand And the science of human taste is a shifting matrix, sensitive and reactive, and human perception is unknowable, really. But the romantic within me loves an ineffable mystery. I like that there are some things about life that you can't explain. 
I'm so charmed by the idea that this quirky matrix that's our senses, it's kind of a thing that would be considered a weakness in this digital tech-dominated world. But in this case, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. And not only a strength, but dare I say, a superpower. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful, Jane Austen. But uh, <laughs> how do they make sock-flavored jelly beans? Can we get back to that? Well, Bridget, I promise we'll get there, but our journey has only just begun. That's Sarah Joyner, one of the producers on our show. Next week on Proof, part two of our two-part series on Bean Boozled. Sarah enters the secret world of flavor technology in pursuit of our mission to find out once and for all how sock-flavored jelly beans are made. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Flavor nerd Sarah Joyner is our producer. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, and Jordan Pearson. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is a big old buttered popcorn flavored jelly bean and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Escoffier. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you want to see the cool images of those 1960s researchers experimenting with the GC, they're up on our website. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review on Apple Podcasts? Because that really helps other people find the show.